0: I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to finish up the chapter we're ruling this morning. Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. before we read the passage and consider it, let's let's pray together. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to Your Word. We're thankful. We're thankful that it's written in a language we can understand. We're thankful that we can uh, gather here uh, freely and not only read it, but consider it, meditate upon it, chew it, uh, munch on it. So we pray that as we do this, uh, you would pour out your Holy Spirit into our midst, because we know that unless your Spirit comes, this will be simply a dead exercise, profiting uh, none of us anything. And so we pray that you would pour out your Spirit, that you would exalt Christ your Son, and that you'd equip us, change us, so that none of us leave here the same way that we came in. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Ephesians 2, uh, we'll begin reading at uh, verse 19 down to the end of the chapter. So then... In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. One more time, beginning at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning Uh, In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle is continually pointing us to uh, our identity in Christ. If you walk through even the first 14 verses of chapter 1, you'll notice in him, in him, in him, in Christ is a constantly repeated phrase. And so the question might come up, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does this uh, practically look like? You know, who are we in Christ? Uh, Who do we belong to? Am I part of a new group of people, et cetera? What does this look like? And so we kind of find an answer to that question as a were in this passage before us. We're going to see just three things that divides up very easily, actually, that we're we're part of a new country or a new kingdom. We're citizens of a of a different realm. We're also part of a brand new family as Christians. And we're 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 part of God's temple and we actually are God's temple. So those three different things are actually pulled out of the text or or in the text that I want us to see this morning. And I want to begin with the fact that we're part of a of a new country in verse 19 the first half of it. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, just by strict definition, a stranger is someone who's a complete outsider, someone unfamiliar with the experience of being on the inside, being a a citizen. And an alien, we might use the term resident alien, is someone who's living in the country but has no rights, doesn't have citizenship. So uh, maybe equivalent to someone who's in the U.S. or overseas and they have a visa, but they don't have full citizenship in that country. And Paul is saying that with respect to uh, being a Christian, we are not those things. So we're not outsiders as Christians anymore, and we're not sort of in the country, but not really part of it and kind of feeling estranged and like we really don't belong and like if something goes wrong, (laughs) this is going to turn upside down and we'll end up in jail with no rights. Paul is saying you are not those things, but that you're actually fellow citizens. Now, why is this so important? It's important for this reason. In every single country around the world, the United States of America included, even in the small town of Pella, in the state of Iowa, uh, every society divides people up into certain categories. These people are important. These people are unimportant. These people are the law-abiding citizens. These are the law breakers. These people matter more. These people matter less. Okay, And what Paul is saying with regard to the heavenly kingdom, this new kingdom we've been called into, what he's saying with regard to your citizenship in heaven is this, nobody's more important than anyone else. You're not strangers anymore. You're not even aliens, which is a step up above strangers as if you're a citizen of heaven, but, but not quite fitting in the mold, but, but there really are a, a, an upper class of Christians that do fit in the mold, and they've got rights and privileges, whereas you don't. Paul's saying all that's out of the picture. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're, you're right alongside them. There's no first-class Christians or second-class Christians. If you're in Christ, then you're a full citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're right in there. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, cool and uncool, socially acceptable, socially awkward, okay? White collar, blue collar, whatever divisions might be in the church today, beloved. None of those matter in the kingdom of heaven, okay? Okay? Everyone is a first-class citizen because that's the only class of Christian that there are in the kingdom of heaven. There's no coach, as it were. Now, why is this so important? So important for a few reasons. I want to walk through them and then we'll move on to the next point. No one in the kingdom of heaven is allowed to hang their head or put their nose in the air what do I mean by that? If there are no second class citizens in heaven, no strangers, no aliens, no people who are uh, lesser than other Christians in the kingdom of heaven, but we're all fellow citizens. If this is true, then no one is allowed to hang their head and no one is allowed to walk with their nose in the air. Look, if you're a Christian, you can't walk around in this world hanging your head. (laughs) This is what I mean. You can't walk around thinking, you know what? If only I was more of a godly Christian, like, like so-and-so, or if only Uh, I was more useful or more productive going out to reach unreached peoples and foreign lands like the missionaries and being a part of that work, then God would really love me. Then I'd really be a Christian. Then I could really have assurance of salvation that this is genuine and real. Beloved, what you're missing is the fact that Jesus died for you, He didn't make a mistake. Your name has been written in the book of the life before the foundations of the world. Like we noticed in Ephesians one, God, God had this decree from all time. You are no less important. You are no more important than someone who you might exalt in your own mind. This is incredibly good news. So if you're walking around sort of beating yourself up, thinking, I wish I could be counted as a better Christian. I wish I could be more righteous in Christ. I wish I could be more of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Then I don't know how else to put it other than stop. <laughs> don't, don't do that. It's not going to be productive in your life. It's not going to be helpful. In fact, it, it's going to kill your joy. Jesus thought you worth dying for. Think about that. He bled for you. He didn't hang on two different crosses, like I've mentioned before, one for the really good Christians and one for the really bad Christians. No, we're, we're all leveled. The cross has a leveling effect, beloved. We all sit there before it with the dirt in our toes. We all watch him. He's the hero bleeding and dying. And he thought you worth dying for. So don't hang your head in despair. Don't walk around thinking, well, I'm just not quite good enough of a Christian. Look, none of us are good enough to be Christians. Let's just set the record straight. We all know this, right? Our theology tells us this. Romans 3 makes, it crystal clear. We've all become worthless. None of us are good enough for this. None of us are worthy of being a Christian. So the fact that we are citizens of this brand new kingdom means that God must have done something marvelous to each of us, and he did. But this also means, secondly, that None of us can walk around with our noses in the air, okay? Because Jesus had to bleed and die for you and for me, which isn't exactly something that we can walk around with, being proud in and of ourselves, saying, hey, <laughs> look how good I am. This is amazing. Jesus had to bleed and he actually had to die. That's how good of a person I am. It doesn't make sense, right? That's how bad of a person I was. That's how wicked I came into the world. Jesus had to bleed and die for me. So that means I'm humbled. That means I'm brought down a notch. So none of us as citizens of heaven can walk around with our noses or should walk around with our noses in the air thinking we're better than others. And one more uh, thing, because we're citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, all earthly citizenship then pales in comparison. I I know it's common we like to have... uh, Pride in America, maybe we're proud of being from Iowa, although the only good thing I've heard from Iowa is that it's a great place to be from, not necessarily a great place to be in. I found that out when I moved to Denver the first time, it was eye opening. I thought Iowa was the greatest thing since sliced bread. We might be proud of being from Pella or the United States, right? But that's, that's, that's a, a, a human passion, a human pride. Beloved, if we think, well, I'm a better person than someone who's from Ethiopia, or I'm a better Christian because I'm, I'm, I'm not from China, I'm not from Madagascar, I'm not from South America, I'm not from South Africa, I'm not from Brazil. Beloved, if that's what we think, if we're proud to be American, then we are misplacing our citizenship. We're, we're missing the boat. Indeed, love your country love your neighbors, try and do good for those people. That's radically different than, than, than being proud in these things, saying, hey, because I, because I was born in America, because I was born in Pella, therefore I'm somebody. No, no, we're no better than any Christian who speaks any other different language with any other different skin color who resides anywhere else in the world. We're no better. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's ultimate. So if somebody comes to you and says, hey, look, I'm, I'm from Texas. People from Texas love, they're proud of Texas, right? I have a sister there I can pick on the state. Uh, I'm, I'm from Texas. You can, you can one-up them. I'm from heaven. I'm from, I'm from Pella. I'm from the, the the other side. I'm from the land of Canaan. I live in Israel. I live in Jerusalem. I, I live in heaven. My citizenship is there. That's where I belong. That's where I'm part of. Beloved, do you realize this? Do you grasp this? Paul's talking about a pretty exalted state. It may have the tendency to go right over our heads. (laughs) If it is, latch onto it and sit down this afternoon and munch on that. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're in a different kingdom. And when this world is all done, when you and I are put into the grave and we're six feet under, our ashes are spread all over creation, we're going to go belong. We're going to go finally realize in fullness that we are citizens of God's kingdom in heaven. Look, here's how unimportant uh, earthly citizenship is, okay? When God's, if God was going to send his son into the world, and earthly citizenship was absolutely important, where would he have caused Jesus to be born and to grow up? At least Jerusalem, right? At least. <laughs> More than likely Rome, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2, of course, to fulfill that for prophecy, but a no-name town, and he was raised where? Nazareth, so that he could be called a Nazarene. What did Philip say? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was like, this was like being in Pella, Otley, Leighton, towns, which if we wipe off the map... Look, the world wouldn't even blink. (laughs) Anderson windows would get busier and maybe Caterpillar or John Deere would have a little more work. Beloved, uh, God is not concerned about where it is that we live, about our earthly nationality. If he was, then our Lord Jesus Christ would have been born into the cream of the crop, into upper class society and had all the names that are associated with dignity in his day regarding nationality. But he wasn't. In fact, God put him at the bottom. Go grow up in Nazareth. Why? Because nothing good can come out of there. Because what's important is that you're part of a heavenly kingdom. And Jesus indeed came all the way down to do just that. So we're also part, not just of a new country, but of a new family. Again, just one little phrase in verse 19. Members of the household of God or members of the uh, family. Of God. Now, this is a step up, you might say, from being a citizen. It's one thing to have a great king, to view God as our king and we're his subjects. But it's another thing to go a step farther and say, hey, God is my father now. So a king is great, but sometimes it's hard to get access to a king, right? Just like it's hard to get access to a president, to, to a congressional man, uh, man or woman. You have to get on their schedule somehow. You have to go in there and like in the days of Esther, if you come in wrong, you may end up losing your life. But now we're, we're called members of the household of God. So we're family. We're called into not just a new kingdom, but also a new family. This is where things become more intimate. It'd be pretty sweet to call the president your father, right? If you're, if you're barren, you can say, hey, this is my, 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 my dad. The, the, the president is my dad. That's, that's pretty awesome. But how about if, if the president's boss, if the president's ruler, God, how about if he's your father? Now, that's pretty amazing. He's the creator of the ends of the earth, you have his ear at any given moment. When you call out to him, when you cry out to him, when you pray to him, it's as if you can walk right in and sit on his lap, and everything stops. And we're all doing this together. Right? God is infinite. He's the only one who can pull this off, right? You can have 10 million Christians praying to him at the same time, and he's attending to all of our prayers. An amazing thought, as a father does to his one child. Now, in a place like Pella, where we're pretty proud of our last names, everyone's very concerned where you come from, this whole notion of being part of the household of God can sometimes grade us wrong, because we tend to think of family this way, that earthly family is the ultimate, that our last name, that where we're born into, that the family we're part of biologically is the ultimate thing, or the, the family we're adopted into is the ultimate thing. But, beloved, the most important family that we're part of is not our earthly family. It's not. The most important part of who you are and who I am sitting right here today is not who your parents were, it's not who your siblings were, it's not who your uncles and aunts are, and it's not what they think of you ultimately. The most important uh, family that you belong to is God's family, His household. You're brought in as a brother or sister in Christ now, and God is your father. That is the ultimate family. And it's a, it's a great blessing if your biological family is also part of God's family. That's, in, that's incredible. That makes those relationships uh, really close, not just biologically, but also spiritually. Earthly family is only temporary, temporary, right? God's family is forever. Earthly family is important, but God's family is infinitely more important. Like the most intimate of all family relationships, marriage, won't even exist in heaven. That's how far uh, God's family exceeds earthly family. Earthly families are so temporary, beloved, that there won't even be marriage or giving in marriage in heaven, but we'll all be like the angels in that way. Quite a thought for us as we live in a, a culture which, which you could say idolizes family, worships family, worships marriage and, and our kids. I think uh, also in my, my own limited experience, which isn't much, Reformed churches tend to idolize biological family. We, we love our covenant children, and we should. We baptize infants, and rightly so. But sometimes we can so exalt our biological family as to miss the simple fact that, that the ultimate for all of our kids is not simply that, that they're part of our family or that they're even growing up in the church. But the ultimate is this, that they believe in Jesus and they become part of God's family. That's the ultimate. That's the prayer of every Christian. That's, that's our hope. And that is the ultimate family that we should all strive to be part of and call people uh, to be part of through faith. Something else this means that we're members of the household of God is that no Christian is allowed to live a lonely existence. Meaning this, it's possible, beloved, that we can go through this life thinking, I'm all alone. I don't have family. I'm, I'm single or I'm the only Christian in my family. So who do I fellowship with? Think about this. When you were called into the faith, you got a massive family all around the globe. Okay? Everywhere. Every single country. All around the planet. You have brothers and sisters. Siblings. Now, maybe your view of siblings isn't great because of your upbringing or maybe your current relationships with them, but, but in the household of God, the view of siblings is amazing. It's incredible. Siblings are a blessing, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if you're sitting here thinking, I, I do feel lonely, I wish I had brothers and sisters who could really understand who I am, what I'm like, Look just look to the side, look behind you, look in front of you, or whatever local church you're part of, there's your family. There's the people God has given to you as members of his household. And God is our father together. This is amazing family life right inside the church. Again, sometimes difficult for us to understand, but it's true. You'll notice something about your new family as well. You didn't pick them. God picks the family. Now, this is good in the sense that... (laughs) Why is God giving us so many commands about one another? Love one another, outdo one another, and showing honor. Uh, bear one another's burdens. One another, one another, one another, one another. Why? It almost sounds like God is our parent, right? Our father. He sounds like a parent, doesn't he? What are parents constantly telling their kids? Look, is that the kindest thing you could have said? How can you how can you love your brother or sister in the midst of this? How can you be a real blessing to them? Look, you're... you're your brother just picked on you, your sister just picked on you, what's a great way to respond to this? How can you show love to them? How can you, how can you return good for their, their evil in the midst of this? Beloved, God gives us those same commands because we're his children. And what do we like to do so many times in the church? Maybe not like to do, what do we slip into? Fighting, just like kids, arguing, going at each other, annoying each other, picking on each other, right? One of us gets too big of a head and we start to drive everybody around us nuts. And so God constantly comes to us and says, love one another. And God picks the family. We don't get to pick our brothers and sisters, do we, in, biologically? We're born into a family. We pick our friends, not our family. It's the same in the church. God picks them. God calls them in. So here's something fun. Here's, here's why the church is such a, uh, a great time, you might say. Uh, adventurous, never dull. <laughs> because you never know who God's going to call in to become a member of the church of which you're a member. You never know who God's going to save next and say, now you need to love this person. You never know who it's going to be. You never know what they're going to do and they never can predict what you're going to do as well. And God says, learn to love kind of to put it bluntly, learn to get along, get along, (laughs) learn to love each other. Well, learn to advance my kingdom, says the Lord, Um, learn to advance it uh, as you do relationships well with one another. And one more item I want to pull out of this notion of being family is that since we are part of the household of God, God is our father. I don't know your view of God. God is holy. He's perfectly just. He's loving, merciful, good, gracious, eternal. You can go all down the list of his communicable and incommunicable attributes. God is all those things. He is our father. God is unapproachable light, and yet he's our father. So I don't know what your view of God is in light of who Jesus Christ is and what Christ has done for you. But here might be sort of an illustration that's very popular to to help us as we learn to relate to him as our father in his household. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. Uh, 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 well, his whole presidency was kind of characterized by the Civil War But during a part of the height of some of the battles He was in his cabinet room with cabinet members And they were really going through uh, a, a lot of stuff Kind of chewing rocks as they were working through decisions to make And the story goes His son Willie showed up at the door Little 10-year-old Willie knocked on the door And Lincoln stopped everything Willie just wanted his dad's attention. So the cabinet members were kind of put out by this. They weren't really happy by this. But Lincoln walked over to his son, asked him what he needed, attended to his care, and then went back to work. The son had a higher uh, priority than the cabinet members did. In other words, in in the mind of Lincoln, Willie was higher up on the pecking order than the cabinet members. Now, beloved, think about this. When you and I cry out to God, everything as it were stops. Think of all the things God is doing, upholding all creation. Every single atom is right in its place. Every single molecule, as as R.C. Sproul put it, there's no maverick molecule. Everything in all creation is being upholded, upholded by his powerful hand. That's a lot of stuff to do. And when you and I pray, it's as if the slate cleans off and we come right in and sit on his lap. And we have his full attention. That's what it is to be a member of the household of God. The father of the universe, the God of the universe, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we cry to him, when we pray to him, he's right there listening. Amazing privilege. Does that blow your mind a little bit? It should. Does that cause you to think, how is this possible that, that God could, as it were, put things on hold, even though he doesn't put anything on hold and pay attention to me and my teeny tiny requests Me, who was born 40 years ago, 15 years ago, 70 years ago, and will soon be dead. How does my prayer get heard by an eternal God? This is amazing, beloved. God's amazing love of you and I, his care for us as children. That's one of the privileges you have of being a member of the household of God. Well, the third picture here, and this is really the biggest picture that Paul's trying to unfold is the picture of the fact that we're God's temple, the picture of the temple building. And it's in verses 20 to 22. Let me read them and we'll walk through them a little bit. So built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now it was one thing to to have God as our king it was quite another thing to have God as our Father. We're getting closer and closer, but, but check this out. How about to have God indwell us where we are the temple? We are the temple. This is, this is the ultimate. This is as close as it gets, beloved. This is the most intimate relationship that there can be, where we know from the rest of Scripture, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. Christ is living in us. This is amazing intimacy. It's why Paul is going to spend a little bit of time unfolding this one. Now, what is a temple? A temple is simply the place where God dwells, where you can meet with God as his people Okay? And the temple started really in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve knew what a temple was before they fell into sin. God was there. They could walk with Him in the cool of the day. God dwelt in their midst, and it was wonderful. It was good. It was glorious. It didn't get any better than that. After the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, we have a new temple. It's called the Tabernacle. The Tabernacle was the place where you could go meet with God. You could go to into the Holy of Holies. One man could only go once a year, and he had to bring blood and this this mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, was inside of the, holies, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And that's where God dwelt, between the cherubim. So we have this mobile temple. So the people would set it up. God would say, time to break camp. And they would break camp, take the tabernacle down. They'd haul all the pieces and parts to the next place, and they'd set it up again. And then in Solomon's day, there was a permanent temple that was built, a glorious structure. And you could go meet with God. You could go meet with God, but only one person could go all the way into God's presence, all the way into the mercy seat. And he could only go in once a year, the high priest, and again with blood. So there were restrictions on it. If you wanted to get really close to God, really intimate with God, you had to be the high priest. And then you could only go in and who knows how long he was in there, but it wasn't long. It just wasn't as possible. You couldn't go all the way in, beloved. There were restrictions on it. And then Solomon's temple was destroyed under Zerubbabel with Cyrus, the king of Persia saying, go rebuild the temple. The temple was rebuilt and then Herod really upped the ante when he really rebuilt the temple or built it up uh, in Jerusalem on his day. What all these temples had in common beloved, is that you could meet with God there, but it was so restricted you couldn't get all the way in. You couldn't come all the way into the presence of God and you still felt a little bit cut off from the presence of God. The only way in was through blood sacrifice. What's interesting about the original temple is that right outside the doors, right outside the gates, as it were, the Lord set cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way. Genesis three twenty four. he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the question is, how do we get back into this dwelling place of God? How do we get back in? How do we go in? We want to be in. And the tabernacle is supposed to be a portrait of, of that Garden of Eden because even in Exodus 25 at verse 18, there's imagery of the Garden of Eden. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. There I will meet with you." So we have the imagery of the original Garden of Eden after God kicked Adam and Eve out of it, set the flaming sword up, set the two cherubim there, and now we have the same imagery inside the most holy place. The mercy seat there where you meet with God, but the cherubim guarding it, saying, be wary if you come. If you come wrongly, you will die. That's the same thing that the Garden of Eden proclaimed. If you want to come back in this Garden of Eden to dwell with God, there's going to be something dying. The sword's going to cut you up. You have to find a way to get through to it. So it was mind bending and earth shattering when God came into the world uh, in the way that John describes the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And if that wasn't enough to convince us, Jesus says it even more pointedly in John two nineteen: destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. And the leaders didn't get it. They're like, it took 46 years to build this temple. What do you mean three days? But he was speaking about his body. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. So if you wanted to go meet with God in Jesus' day, where would you go? To Christ, to Jesus. He's standing right there. So things are warming up. What Moses couldn't even fathom, what Abraham would have killed for, what the Old Testament Israelites would have longed for (laughs) is starting to become fulfilled. Oh, God's getting closer our Lord has skin now. We can follow him around. We can see him. We can touch him. He's right in front of our eyes. But the New Testament goes even farther with regard to this temple metaphor. First Peter two, five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Second Corinthians six sixteen. We are the temple of the living God. First Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You are that temple. So in the new covenant now, beloved, what every Old Testament Israelite would have loved to experience, what what almost none of them knew except for the high priest, and even that was a pretty intimidating experience. I hope I don't mess up or I'm not making it out of this most holy place alive. What they all longed for, you and I actually experienced to a huge degree, a much greater degree, the presence of God in us. The presence of God living in us, indwelling us in a more fulsome way than any believer in the Old Testament was able to experience. And the ultimate culmination of this is in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Marvelous. I want to walk through some of Ephesians 2:20 and then 21 and 22 those verses after just considering what this temple metaphor means what 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 why this is so important why it's so incredible the first thing this means is this there is no earthly temple to go to sanctuaries, church buildings. We may have fond remembrances of them because of what took place in them. Maybe we came to faith in them. Maybe we were really edified and sanctified in them. Those fond memories are great, but they don't make any earthly building the temple of God. You, you, can't, you can't go to a, temp, a building and say, this is where God is dwelling. He dwells in the church corporately and in each of us individually. We are now the temple of God, beloved. It's an amazing concept. No buildings are set apart by God like in the old covenant saying, well, this building's a special building. Never tear it down. Don't remodel it and don't do anything to it. That's not what church buildings are. They're a place to meet. They, they usually have air conditioning. It's just as simple as that, right? We, can, we could just as well meet outside. When it rains, they shed the water. When it's 10 below, then we turn the heat on. That's what a church building is. A church building is not a place that's God's temple. We are God's temple. Something else to consider is that the church the temple is built on Christ and his word built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now the cornerstone is simply the, it was usually a massive stone and it was part of laying the foundation. It had to be square because everything else was sort of uh, tried off of it, squared off of it. So Christ is the cornerstone. He's the most important stone in this entire building. Everything is squared off of Jesus. He keeps the church in line as it were. And the part of the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. I take this to mean the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The prophets who spoke in the past, the Old Testament, and the apostles, the apostolic foundation laid out in the New, in their writings in the New Testament. So that what is at the foundation of the life of the church, the temple of God, is the word of God and Christ as he is unfolded through the word, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible. So here's something to to consider in light of this. There are things we are doing, we'll get really practical here. There are things we're doing right now in the life of Hope Church that are sinful. We're not the perfect church, right? There is no perfect church. What does that mean? It means that, that, that we're living in sin in some way. We probably can't see it very clearly now where I trust we'd be repenting. We'd be fasting. We'd be turning things around in light of our failure. So there are things that we are doing that are sinful right now. Every church is engaging in this and, and wrongfully so. Maybe we don't know what they are. Maybe we do. But When the word of God exposes those things, because it's the foundation, it's the authority of the temple, which is the church of God, the family of God. When those things are exposed, what do we say? Well, the word of God's outdated. Well, but that sounds too difficult. Well, but we've always done it this way. How about, we need to repent. We just found out in the word that the way we're doing church life or our priorities, they are way off. We need to do a 180 here. Thank God for the way he's blessed us. Thank God for the way he's patient with us. Thank God for the things that he's caused us to do well. But in this way we're really failing. So let's turn let's turn the ship around. At a moment's notice, beloved, no matter what church we're part of, that's part of church life. Repenting. Not just as individual Christians, but also as a as a whole church. If the Bible really is the ultimate authority and we ever find out that we're not in line with it, then we need to turn around because it's the foundation. We don't change the foundation. <laughs> we don't change the cornerstone. We don't say, Well, we need a new savior, we need a new word. No. The word of God is final. The canon's closed. It's the ultimate authority. So we have to figure out if we're lining up with it. That's, that's as practical as we can possibly get with the fact that the word of God is the part of the foundation. And there are two places where God's temple is being constructed. If you take a look at verses 21 and 22, two, two little portraits here. Verse 21, uh, the temple is being constructed in the church corporately, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's sort of looking at the church universal, as it were, the whole massive structure of the church. And then, uh, secondly, it's being constructed in our own lives. Verse 22, in him, you also, or you yourselves, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's two images here the one of the entire universal church, and how this little church in Ephesus fits into there, full of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And there's also the portrait of, of a local church and how each individual believer is being joined together for the sake of that church. And I want to I look at just the image of the entire universal church in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This means that Hope Church, and every local church represented here, is actually being formed and fitted into the whole structure of of God's universal church all over the world. It means that every church is, is undergoing change, is undergoing uh, repentance, is undergoing shaping and forming so that we can be more useful to God's overarching plan, which, which supersedes simply why hope exists and, and other uh, congregations in the OPC and reformed churches, etc. But God has a massive plan, beloved, all over the world, and he's shaping hope so that we can be part of that plan. In other words, the moment a church starts focusing on itself and starts losing the grand picture, God has a lot of work to do. And he starts working and he starts chipping away at that local church saying, you don't exist for yourself. There's a big kingdom out here. We've got worldwide stuff to do. We've got local stuff to do, but, it, but it's far bigger than just your local church. So, so get on board with it and let's go. But the other thing that that we notice in the passage, the first image is of the universal church. The second one is of the local church being built up in verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've watched a Mason work nowadays. We have our 8 by 8 by 16 inch wide blocks that are usually pre-cut pre-molded and they're they're pretty exacting so you don't have to do any cutting on the block until you get to a corner or a door or window but in this day when you laid a foundation stones didn't come pre-made in nice little packages that were all square so if you want to lay a foundation stone you're cutting you're hammering you're sawing you're doing whatever it takes to make these stones fit into place it's a lot of work like in the, in the days when Solomon was building the temple, they did all this work at the quarry so that when they came on site, they, it could just be quiet there. But there was tons of work going out in the quarry. Beloved, God is doing that work, not just in each local church all around the world, but God is also doing it in each of our lives, the lives of every Christian all around the world, so that we can be fitted into our local church. And we could be formed into such a way that we're more of a blessing to the people around us and more useful in advancing his kingdom. You can't control what other people think of you as a believer. You can control how you think of other Christians. And here's how we ought to think of them living stones. They're being molded and shaped into this grand edifice, a temple. If you want to picture a wall or picture a building going up or picture a foundation. This Christian who just came in, just came to faith, they're being fitted right next to me and they've got a lot of jagged edges. (laughs) And I've got some jagged edges too. So the Mason does what? Knocks it off, breaks it off, out comes the hammer, right? And it hurts. We may think, man, they have a lot of jagged edges, and then the mason slaps two off of us, and we think, oh, I guess it was me who had the jagged edge. <laughs> They're actually doing pretty good. And God is fitting us into this building, into this foundation, into this, into this grand place that's built upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And beloved, sometimes it hurts, but it's always for our good. It's always for his kingdom. It's always for the well-being of the church. I think C.S. Lewis put it so well in Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks on the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So beloved, God dwells in the church and it's a holy temple if you notice the language of the apostle Paul. And when he comes and lives in it, he's going to make it holy. What does that look like for you and me? It looks like this. Beloved, our sins are being dealt with God loves us so much that He's going to form and fit us into our local church. People in your local church have gifts you don't. They have talents you don't. They see things you don't. They see your sins that you don't, and you see theirs. Why does God do this? Why doesn't He make us all cookie-cutter Christians? Because we'd be blind to each other's sins. We'd be, we'd be unable to help each other because we'd all think the same, look the same, and have the same sins. But God brings us all different stones. When you go to a quarry, are all the stones the same? No, they're all different. You pull them out different sizes, different shapes. You have to cut them to fit into the mold of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing. So is He doing that in your life? Is He working that out in your heart and in my heart? Is God shaping you? Is He using Christians that you're in fellowship with to shape you, to mold you into the image of His Son? If He is, praise Him for it. Don't, don't resist it. Make sure I don't resist it. Make sure each other don't resist this. Make sure we're walking through the pain of being molded, of being shaped. It's what God's doing in building His temple. Beloved, you have such intimacy with God. The Old Testament believers would have died to be in your shoes. Enjoy it. Go to Him. Relate to Him. Love Him. Walk into His presence and sit there. It's, it's the best place that there is to be. It's what every human heart is longing for, to finally walk into the presence of God and have peace, to know peace, rather than animosity and enmity and worry and anxiety. We can go all the way in because of our Lord Jesus Christ and experience peace with him. Let's pray.